We are all driven by searching for something better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, but match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You can ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Listeners of Mindscape will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Mindscape. Just go to Indeed.com slash Mindscape right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Mindscape. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even, checkout's not until four, so. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Mindscape Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Carroll. On the podcast, we've occasionally talked about moral philosophy, right? What is right? What is wrong? How do we decide these things? In fact, I'm kind of more interested and knowledgeable about meta-ethics than I am about ethics. So meta-ethics being how do we decide what is right and wrong versus ethics, which is what is right and what is wrong. But no matter what your choices are about how to decide what is right and what is wrong, as a society, there will be people who don't listen to you, right? Who violate the rules, who break the laws, who act in ways that you've decided were wrong. What do you do about those people? And generally speaking, whether it's a dictatorship or a democracy or whatever, generally speaking, the end result is we throw them in jail. Sometimes there's a death penalty or financial things, but throwing people in either jail or prison, incarcerating them in other words, is the most common way to punish people for serious crimes in the modern world. So that raises questions. Who should be incarcerated? What should be the process by which we decide who is incarcerated? And it's very interesting that here in the United States, where I live, we are completely an outlier worldwide. The United States has the largest prison population in the world and the highest per capita incarceration rate. In some sense, this is a recent phenomenon. We've, we've increased the number of people who are incarcerated by four times uh, since 1980. So something has happened. We're putting a lot more people in prison. Why is that, and is it the right thing to do? So today I'm talking to Charis Kubrin, who is a criminologist who studies this whole phenomenon of incarceration, both who gets incarcerated and should they get incarcerated. One specific thing we talk about, not just the general theory of incarceration, though there is that, but one of her expertises is, let's put it this way, would you be happy if you were on trial and the prosecutor brought up your youthful poetry as evidence that you were in a bad state of mind? I mean, maybe you had written some poetry that was violent or misogynistic or something like that, okay? Well, how about if instead of poetry, it was rap lyrics? 
turns out that if you're a young person and you've written violent rap lyrics, those lyrics that you wrote as a youth are more likely to be held against you in a criminal trial than other things that maybe would be more relevant. So Charis has actually uh, done a lot of work, both academically and also in briefs before appellate courts and so forth, on why that is not a good idea. You should not take people's rap lyrics as confessions to crimes. It's an art form. It's poetry. There could be people who are very violent offenders and also rap artists, but that's not a necessary relationship. I don't know. Is this true? Is this a good idea? So that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about this whole set of ideas involving who should be put into prison and jail and how we actually do it and why the United States is so different than other places, whether it even works, right? Is it true that throwing people in jail or in prison decreases crime? It's not obvious, but uh, social science very, very complicated. Wherever people are involved, the questions become much harder. So let's go. Charis Kubrin, welcome to the Mindscape Podcast. Thank you. So you're dealing with one of these topics I occasionally have on the podcast where many people who are listening, including well myself, who am talking, uh, will not be an expert in the area and yet have strong opinions, right? When we're talking about car <laughs> incarceration, crime, race, things like that. So why don't we just start with some background knowledge because people do have these opinions, but your database, do you actually have the numbers and you can help us get straight? I mean, is the general feeling that here in the United States... Uh, we have an international audience, but we here in the United States have a feeling amongst ourselves that we incarcerate a lot of people. How uh, how accurate is that feeling? Yeah, it's it's accurate. It was particularly accurate in the early 2000s up to about 2011. And this is when our field of criminology saw the introduction of new terms. I mean, this is how you know something is a big deal when new terms like mass incarceration yeah. uh, come onto the scene. And so we've the United States um, is definitely the place where we incarcerate at the highest rate compared to anywhere. Students are still surprised to, to hear that. We got better around 2011 with rates going down a little bit, but we still far outstrip, you know, pretty much anywhere else in the world in terms of our incarceration rates, unfortunately. So not only do we outstrip, you know, France and Canada and Japan, but, you know, some of the biggest repressive <laughs> dictatorships Absolutely. in the world. We're much yes, better putting people in jail. We don't typically compare ourselves to. Yes. And again, just to you know, set the landscape so we know what's going on, is that mostly a federal issue? Is it a state issue? You know, why is it that we're so good at putting people in prison? It's mostly a state issue. So, I mean, we still have an, an issue at the federal level, but the bulk of people incarcerated in the United States are in state level institutions. Um, we, it's, so I could give a whole lecture on the buildup of mass incarceration, its disproportionate effect on certain populations. Um, I could go on and on, but in, in short term, we've just punished too many people for far too long. Mm. And so we've grown pretty severe in what we choose to punish in terms of casting the net out quite widely. Um, and then we've enacted policies like mandatory sentencing, truth in sentencing, that really punish individuals for quite a long time relative to the crimes that they've committed. Right. So 
that makes perfect sense. Both of those factors make perfect sense. Let me let me just dig in a little bit more to both of them. Um, when you say that we incarcerate a lot of people, is that the kinds of crimes or just even very minor crimes we throw people in prison for? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. I, so I think we've identified uh, crimes for which in other places perhaps the, the result is not to incarcerate an individual rehabilitation or other form of supervision. Um, I'll take California, my state, for example. Um, we just started criminalizing very low-level drug offenses in particular that helped build up the population in our prisons and in the last several years have had to enact several reforms which have moved many of these crimes to lower offenses for which prison was not now not the uh, the outcome, if you will. And I guess, you know, one could still make the argument, maybe people do, that we're doing it right and everyone else is doing it wrong. Is there a, is there a feeling out there in the community about that? No. <laughs> Some <laughs> of my, yeah, I mean, I've been on, I've, I've, I've been on radio shows and others where I've, I've been arguing opposite of someone else who thinks the system is working great. We're doing a great job. Um, and I, I guess I would say, you know, it's good to be number one for in a lot of things in the United States, but having the the most individuals incarcerated per capita is not something yeah. to be proud of. It to me, it's a it suggests a system that is over incarcerating. And I think there's finally realization of that on both the left and the right. And this is why we've had reforms all over the United States, in particular, California, my state has really done a lot to turn the ship around. Um, and that was prompted in 2011 by the, the Supreme Court stepping in and saying, this, this is, the conditions in California state prisons are so horrible, the overcrowding is so problematic that you need to find a way to very quickly reduce your prison population. And this is not a notoriously left-leaning Supreme Court saying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. I mean, it's bad. It's bad to begin with. It's really bad when you know the Supreme Court steps in and says, "Let this has to be fixed." And California did. Well, you mentioned drug offenses in particular, and I think that's the thing that you hear more often than anywhere else. That the United States mm -hmm. is just crazy about throwing people in jail or in prison for drug offenses, including relatively minor ones. Is that a big cause of our, our leading the world? It's part of it, but there's there's so many other. I mean, just low-level kinds of crimes, thefts and other things. Um, numbers of priors being a major determinant of incarcerating people for long periods of time. Excessive sentences once individuals are convicted. We have uh, problems with um, um, basically probation and parole, well, parole in particular. When an individual is incarcerated and then let out early on parole um, and then in, does something that constitutes a violation of that parole, they go right back to prison in California. At least mm -hmm. they did prior to these reforms. And so we, we kept filling the prisons back up with people that were violating parole on their very first time, for example. So not a lot of chances given, a lot, you know, harsh penalties for relatively minor crimes. You know, so this at the end of the day creates the buildup. We just had, as we're recording this, didn't we just have like a week or two ago a Supreme Court decision saying it was okay to throw juvenile offenders in prison without possibility of parole forever? Um, I'm not, I've been really slammed last week. Okay. <laughs> Try, uh, yeah, they're probably... Uh, I'm. I'm not. I haven't been keeping up with with that. So I'm not. What happened? Yeah, there was. I, I remember. I mean, um, uh, Sonia Sotomayor. I think wrote a 
blistering descent as one does but there's a 6-3 decision and i'm not going to get the details right but basically yeah. it made it much easier to throw juveniles in for life without any possibility of parole which a lot of people were saying like how do you ever judge yeah. uh, especially when certain members of the supreme court are known for their own youthful indiscretions <laughs> well absolutely that's why we have an entire juvenile justice system because we recognize that youth are, are quite different in their development than adults yeah. and so they shouldn't be held accountable in the same ways um, as adults. There should be more rehabilitation. And is there, this is probably going to take us a field. We'll, we'll get back to focus a little bit, but I can see where is in the United States, if you're a politician campaigning, you want to get elected, then saying, let's let more people out of prison is not the winning campaign slogan. But th that sounds very simplistic. And why is that not the case in other countries? I mean, what is it about us that makes us so different? Oh. I mean, there, there's just so much. Our history, the, the role of politics in our criminal justice system has become, in my opinion, out of control. Mm -hmm. you will, you're absolutely right. To, the left and the right can never say um, we, need, we, you know, we need to rethink um, our policies and practices. It's always about getting tough on crime. Um, I, I, you know, why we're different is a really difficult question that I'm not quite sure I have I have the answer to or I know enough about what's mm -hmm. happening in other countries to make those comparisons. But, um, you know, I, I do think at least for 40, 50, 60 decades, crime and getting tough on crime, the politicization of crime has been very salient in our right. in our country. And I mean, I remember in 1994 when the crime bill was passed, I remember when Bill Clinton was running. I mean, it was like a race between the left and the right as to who was going to be tougher on crime. And so, um, yeah, you're not going to get elected. You don't get votes. Uh, that's pretty much the norm of, from local politics to, to all the way up to the president. Well, and another way that the United States stands out, of course, is in its gun laws and its gun ownership uh, patterns. Is, is that is that a close uh, tie into the sentencing and the criminal population, or is it just two things that are going in parallel? Yeah, I think that helps explain the United States rates of violence relative to other countries. So, yes, absolutely. Guns, gun ownership is a huge part of that story. In terms of in terms of the you know how it played into the question that you asked prior, I'm not exactly sure. But certainly, when criminologists talk about why is why is violence so high, why are homicide rates mm. so high in the U.S., guns are a key part of that conversation, 100. percent Okay, so I mean, we have we have a lot of violent crime here in the United States, but it's not nearly enough to account for all the incarceration, right? So, uh, so yeah. much of it is nonviolent crime. So we're just incarcerating people right and left. We like people throwing people in prison. Yeah, we, we tend to assume that the link between crime and incarceration is perfect, right? That it's correlated, you know, you know? Yeah. Um, and there is obviously some correlation, but it's not nearly a perfect correlation as one might think. There's so many other factors that go into um, um, the, the incarceration rates. And, and some of that I talked about before, but crime is only one part of it. And, and, you know, the other assumption that happens is we assume that incarcerating people at a high rate will reduce crime on the other end, sort of reverse causality. And that's also been shown not to necessarily be the case to the extent that we would think it would be. There's some debate, but uh, economists say hmm, maybe 20% of the crime decline, for example, we had, so, Crime really rose in the 80s. 
uh, leveled off in the in sort of the early 90s and started going down. And this has been the great American crime decline, mm-hmm. the crime drop um, till about the mid 2000s. And criminologists have rushed to figure out what it is that caused crime to go down. And, you know, those that support this harsh punishment will argue, well, we've just incarcerated more people and that's right. brought the crime down. But uh, only about 20 percent of that decline has been attributed to um to punishment, basically. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a lot to talk about in terms of uh, why people are committing crimes, how much they're committing. The the last question I have on sort of the background incarceration question is, what about the role of private prisons versus state-run ones? Like, This is something I know nothing about, but it's definitely one of the phrases I hear being bandied about. This is the most under-discussed topic that is on the horizon, that is a huge obstacle for this country. When Obama was president, he was beginning to phase out private private prisons. In fact, at the federal level, he was closing them all down. Mm-hmm. Trump came in, and I don't know if you noticed, but when Trump was elected president, stocks in private prisons skyrocketed. And Did not notice. Great, yeah. <laughs> and what's interesting is there's no appetite for private prisons with respect to our general prison population because of interest to minimize mass incarceration. So it's shifting and it's shifting to immigrant populations. Okay. So for example, what we're seeing with um, Trump's immigration policies was a buildup of privatization around immigrant detention. And right, if you're going to identify Roundup and deport large swaths of people as President Trump wanted to do. You need places to hold individuals, Mm. right? These sorts of things. So a lot of immigration um, detention is privatized. So that's been resurrected. Unfortunately, I have huge, I mean, you would, it'd be rare to find a criminologist that thinks this is a good move. And I could spend days talking about the problems associated with private prisons. You know, I mean, at, at its fundamental core, having institutions profit off of having, you know, it's a business and, and that's a, a fundamental concern among many critics of private prisons. Well, it's it's very analogous, I guess, to the healthcare situation, right? Where having yeah. lots of money you can make by not giving people healthcare is uh, is a problematic incentive structure, even if you believe in capitalism. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So yeah, this is this is growing. I, I in all my courses, I have a segment on private prisons, and when I show the growth of private prisons, and the number of companies involved and employees, I mean, it's a whole it's a whole beast. Some exciting news for fans of our sponsors here on Mindscape. The Great Courses Plus is now Wondrium. Wondrium is everything we know and love about The Great Courses Plus and much more. Wondrium provides fantastic video and audio learning experiences. Tons of great content to enrich our lives with mind-blowing moments. You can still stream all of your favorites from The Great Courses, including videos created in partnership with National Geographic, Smithsonian, History, the Culinary Institute of America, and more. My favorite part of working with The Great Courses was that when I worked with them, they clearly cared about getting the content right, which means that if you're watching something on Wondrium, whether it's about the history of ancient Egypt or how to cook a souffle, you know that you're in capable hands. I can't wait for you to experience Wondrium, so prepare to have your mind blown. Sign up now through my special URL to get this great offer, a 14-day free trial with unlimited access. Just go to wondrium.com mindscape. 
That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Mindscape, Wondrium.com slash Mindscape. So how, I mean, how big is it? Like what if I'm, if I oh. uh, get arrested at the state level for selling drugs, what is the chances I'm going to end up in a private prison? Depends on the state, depends on who they're contracting with, depends on how full their beds are. I mean, there's there there are um, many states that because they've incarcerated so many folks in their public institutions now mm -hmm. have had to reach out to private institutions and are paying to house individuals in their facilities. Is it more costly to the state to have a private prison um, or... You know, so it, this is so, this is really a, these questions are good. They're, they're very difficult to answer because each state is quite different. Right. Okay. So just to give you a concrete example, it's about $65,000 a year per individual to house in a, in, in a public facility in California. Okay. That's and, a number that more people, more politicians should be mentioning when they're, when they're talking about how many people should be in prison. <laughs> especially when you look at budgets around education in California yeah. <laughs> versus, oh, yeah. right. All right. Homeless, and I mean, yes. one of the, one of the big stories of California is how many prisons were built, you know, in the last several decades relative to new campuses, say, for example, in the UC system, right. how much money is funneled to um, prison development versus education and then even with that, they're still using private facilities in California. Now, that's come down a bit um, over the years, but that was a very scary trajectory that was happening. And from our immigrant detention, privatization is still the primary way that that happens. Right. And, and you did put the finger on uh, the Trump administration for the immigrant issue in particular. But it's important to emphasize that otherwise it's been a bipartisan push, right? hundred percent. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I, one of the things that we taught when when President Obama was um, what, you know, when he was uh, in a president, when he was president, they were referring to him as the deporter in chief. Hmm. They were, ref you know, it was a, a detention nation. Um, there's a lot that both sides have done to to kind of create restrictive, harsh, exclusionary policy aimed at immigrants. Right. And I, I did want to you, you wrote another couple of papers that I thought were just worth getting on the table here, even though they're not in the direct line of what we're talking about. But you mentioned the drug offenses and how that's a lot of the prison population. And then we can discuss, well, what should people be thrown in prison for? And so you did some studies on the relationship between uh, legalizing marijuana and suicide. And so letting pot be legal decreases the suicide rate in some sense. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, what the what we, we used a really fancy methodological approach to determine sort of what would have happened to suicide in California had you know, we basically had things continued as such. What did, did legalizing marijuana have an impact? And yeah, basically what we found was that it, it lowered suicide rates. And, you know, the main question is why, what right. are the mechanisms behind that? What accounts for that? And that is unexplored using the methodology that, that we did, but we raise a series of possibilities looking at whether people are substituting marijuana um, instead of alcohol, alcohol causing, you know, a lot of mental health and other kinds of problems. So, yeah, th there's <laughs> there's a, there's uh, generally I like to look at the impacts of various policies on a number of outcomes. I, I keep my personal opinions about the policies sure. out um, in terms of legalization or these reforms. But just 
There's so many claims around the impacts of these policies and the harms that they're going to cause and create, yet very little research done on their impact. So my focus has always been, well, what, what, what is the impact of legalization on such and such outcome? And what I really liked about this study is actually there's an interesting philosophy question here because it's easy to sort of just track the you know number of suicides or number of incarcerations or whatever and like draw a line at where something is legalized. Mm-hmm. But you went beyond that. You constructed an alternative world in which it had not been legalized, right? Like you tried to model what it would have been like because there's other things going on in the world, right? So there's some counterfactual exploration here, which is actually philosophically very interesting. Yeah, my number one pet peeve with sort of the news reporting on these sorts of policies is what what they will typically do is a policy gets enacted, whatever that policy is, people will follow what goes on with crime. It'll go up, it'll go down, it'll (laughs) stay the same. And then they immediately attribute any change in crime to the policy, forgetting that that crime or any outcome, suicide for that matter, is a is you know, affected by so many different factors. Um, I mean, if you take crime, for example, we can look at the role of guns, drugs, gangs, economic conditions, you know, joblessness, poverty, demographic shifts in the population, other policies, policing, right? So crime is going to do what it's going to do because of myriad of factors. If you want to isolate out the impact of one particular policy, you have to do something a little more sophisticated than look at what crime trends do following that policy. And that's why we do the synthetic control design method. Do, do you, since I don't know how different fields uh, tie together, I mean, there's been a, a burgeoning discourse in the idea of causality in the social sciences, Judea yes. Pearl and things like that. Are you, do you, does that stuff impact what you do? Yes. Love oh, it. Okay, and and my, my former grad student, who's now a professor at the University of Arizona, Brad Bartos, he did his entire dissertation on causality oh, wonderful. and looking at the way in which um, this, this approach, the synthetic control design method addresses some of the biggest challenges to determining causality when you have a situation where you can't conduct a pure experiment, right? My field is very difficult. Yeah. I'd love to experimentally <laughs> assign a policy to some states and not others, right? right? That's never going to happen. And so we do these quasi-experiments, um, sort of the next best thing, which has all the benefits of an experimental approach minus the random assignment, if you will, um, to treatment or control. And yeah, so that that is front and center. There's philosophical components of it that I love and get into. And then there's also just like, this makes for a good way to test policy. Right. All right. Well, thank you for indulging my, my philosophical oh, question I, I can talk there, about but... that all day. <laughs> <laughs> but there's another philosophical question I have, actually. So uh, moving into the sort of more nitty gritty of how people get um, incarcerated, convicted, etc. But let me still lay some groundwork here. I mean, do you, this is, too much to ask, but do you have a feeling for what the right answer is or should be to the question of why should you incarcerate people at all, right? There's punishment, deterrence, rehabilitation, there's all the different motivations, and we're not very clear necessarily about why we do it. What is the right answer? I do not know. (laughs) And I don't think it's one answer. I think it's historically contingent. It's contextualized. There's a lot of variation, whether we're talking at the local level, the state, federal. It's it's complex. And um, 
you know, we're really good. Criminologists are really good at telling you what, tell, telling everyone what they're doing wrong. It's a lot more difficult to come up with solutions to those problems. I can tell you right now, we're still incarcerating too many people, and I can, you know, I can identify places where we're too harsh or the policies are not working. Um, so, like, I fully supported all of the reforms that California has enacted, and the research shows they're not causing crime to go up. You know, we need to start. Look, that was some of the lower hanging fruit. Right. It's easy for me to say, well, petty theft, you should not go to state prison at the cost of sixty five thousand dollars a year and serve out a long sentence for petty theft. There are other ways to address that. Um, the question really comes, well, what about violent individuals who have engaged in violent crime? Right. And I'm I'm very sympathetic to victims and others. Um, I've myself have been a victim of, of various crimes, mm. including violent crime. And so I'm not one to just say abolish the prisons, uh, you know, that we don't need, we don't need to incarcerate anybody because I do think there are individuals out there that can, that are dangerous and that need to be behind bars because they're producing lots of harm to society. So, you know, I'm not that extreme on that end. Um, I certainly think there's still room for reform. So that's kind of where I situate myself, identifying very carefully where it is that we can make changes um, recognizing that um, there's still room for improvement, but also not ready to kind of throw the system out. Yeah, no, that's very good. And I, I love the fact that you're willing to say when you don't know what the answer is to a question. So oh, not, yeah. not all podcast guests are quite so <laughs> honest with themselves. So thank you for that. But so I guess the, I guess one of the answers is that, you know, different people involved in the criminal justice system might have different individual feelings, philosophies about why we're doing this, but, you know, often they line up and, and at least we would like to prevent crime, right? And so we can say, well, if a certain incarceration policy doesn't prevent crimes, then why are we doing it? That's part of it for sure. I mean, its impact on crime is 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 key, but there's other considerations like, you know, maintaining um, the values that underlie our system of democracy, hmm. just, you know, just a just system, a fair system that even if, even if a policy might lower crime, if it's not fair or just, um, you know, we, we can question whether that's a useful policy, uh, you know, questions around retribution or rehabilitation, like what are the values that underlie our system? And I think they're so varied and, and, you know, if, if a policy doesn't limit crime, but, um, uh, doesn't increase it either and is more humane, what do we feel about that policy? Sure. Yeah. I'm so not... I, it's, a, it's a heavy topic. Yeah, it, it is. But, you know, you're in it. You're the one who has to think about it. I, I don't. I think about the universe. It's very non-valued. <laughs> it's just the laws of physics. I don't, but, you know, yeah. I did... Uh, when I was in high school, I was on the debate team and we had, uh, you know, the debate topic that year was a criminal justice topic. So that that was my last exposure. I won't say how many years ago, but I remember what was the topic. Oh, it was about the exclusionary rule in the Fourth uh -huh. Amendment. Right. Yes. Uh, um, no, actually, sorry, it wasn't. Our case was about the exclusionary rule in the Fourth Amendment. The, the, the topic was just about uh, criminal justice reform more broadly. And I forget exactly. It's like the United States should enact large-scale yeah. criminal justice reform. Um, but I remember the motto that it would be better uh, that a thousand guilty people go free than that one right. innocent person be convicted. 
We're clearly nowhere near that, right? I mean, just in right. uh, capital cases, once DNA came in, we realized, holy crap, we've been <laughs> finding a lot of people guilty uh, who were not. I mean, what is your feeling about the reliability of the criminal justice system in actually incarcerating people who were guilty, at least nominally, of the crimes they're being uh, accused of? Right. This is the tension in our system. And it goes back, I mean, criminologists have and, and theorists have been writing about this for decades. On the one hand, we can we can value crime control and the processing of cases through the system as quickly and expediently as possible, you know, um, dealing with the large caseloads that we have. I mean, mm. this is part of our problem is that, you know, the vast majority of people never go to trial. They plead guilty. Why? Because our system is overloaded. So they're not even exercising those rights that we so fundamentally hold and value, yeah. right? On the other end of the, if you think of that as one model, efficiency, crime control, um, handling the large caseload. On the other end is sort of the due process model, which says, um, you know, and I, I, the first one I liken to more like a, a, a an assembly line. It's assembly line justice, right? We're, we're getting most people through. Um, on the other hand, errors are happening, but mm -hmm. we're willing to tolerate those errors in the larger goal of, of, of processing and efficiency. Then there's the other end, the due process end, which I liken more to a, an obstacle course, right? <laughs> <We're>, <laughs> the goal really is to root out people of the system early on so that we're not producing error. Right. The problem is, is that in that ideal role, everyone's going to trial every stage of the system is slowing down to make sure errors are not happening. It's not functional in our society. I mean, there's so, a resource limitation, right? It's a re exactly. And so, you know, those are the ideals in, in some way, the sort of theoretical ideals and our system is somewhere in the middle and we can debate all of that. So how many errors are we willing to withstand to make sure, for example, that people are processed through the system and justice is done, right? If you're a victim, and the individual that 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 the offender that victimized you is it, their case is thrown out because they, they weren't arrested or they weren't um, charged within 48 hours of being arrested, which is is the rule. And that case is thrown out. Right. Is justice being done? Hmm. So there has to be some processing that happens. Um, the question is, how much error are we tolerating now? when it comes to the death penalty, the answer should be zero, <laughs> right? And this is the big, this debate we've seen the most play out with respect to the death penalty because of errors and the the, the consequences of those errors. It's interesting because it re actually reminds me of Richard Feynman being on the Challenger Disaster Committee. He went and uh, interviewed a bunch of uh, engineers at NASA and higher ups at NASA. And when he talked to the higher ups at NASA, he said, you know, what in your mind was the acceptable failure rate for the launches of a space shuttle. And they said 0%. Mm -hmm. uh, and he said, but that is literally physically impossible. You could never have zero. They were clearly just saying that because they couldn't possibly quote a number politically. Exactly. Right? And, and presumably the same thing is true in criminal justice. The only way to get 0% failure rate, even in capital cases, is just to not to have the death penalty, right? Right. Absolutely. I mean, that, and yeah. So, and these are, these are, it's funny because when you ask the question, what is that percentage? Nobody's going to say a percentage like that. And yeah. that's why these are nice theoretical models that we can debate about. But at the end of the day, um, yeah, these are, these numbers are not something that anyone has an appetite to discuss. Yeah. So no one is going to say, we'll, we'll accept 
0.1% of our verdicts being false. But what they will say is we can't afford to spend all this money doing every trial at, at, in all of its glory, right? Yep. And so we have a problem then with things like, again, I'm not an expert here, help me, with things like the public defender system. You know, a lot of mm -hmm. these, uh, 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 I, I want to say clients, uh, suspects, what are they called? <laughs> Accused. Yeah, clients uh, is actually the right term. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, you know, they, they are given a public defender who's overworked, makes, makes a lot of mistakes. I mean, how much is that one of the problems in getting that uh, failure rate down as low as we can? I think, yeah, it's hard to pinpoint what, you know, what accounts for these errors because there's so many different factors involved, but certainly um, an overburdened system, and that is part of the overburdened system. Hmm. Now, I mean, the, the, the thing about public defenders is even though they have large caseloads, they also have very good working um, relationships with other members of the court, including the judge and the prosecutor. So they're often able to make very good plea deals. Okay. Um, and they're part of the courtroom work group. So there's, you know, there's advantages and disadvantages, but certainly, you know, one of the other old sayings is if you look to see who's on death row, you're never going to find someone with a lot of money on death row. Right. So yeah, having money, <laughs> being able to afford a whole pile of attorneys that are going to push to, to, to advocate on your behalf is a huge, huge plus. I mean, this, right. and, and there's other ways like with respect to bail, right? Right now, there's a lot of debate about whether cash bail should be part of the system or not, right? It disadvantages those that don't have access to cash. Um, and we know that a there's a large correlation between being put behind bars, um, pro you know, pretrial detention and your outcome. Hmm. So, Money is and 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 resources are definitely a key part of this. Is there a simple explanation beyond just well, good lawyers are good as to why we have this impression that you can, if you're sufficiently wealthy, buy your way out of almost any conviction? Oh, it goes to so many different things. So you can do studies early on to identify who the ideal juror is for a case, hmm. right? So if you have resources, you can do interviews focus groups, the attorneys can right. identify who ideal jurors are. They are able to, um, you know, at every stage of the way, they're able to use those resources to help the client in their case, get certain kinds of experts present in the courtroom, high pay, you know, high cost expert witnesses that will come in and, and help the case, right? Just it, yeah. at different stages like that. But it's interesting. So it's not just straight out corruption. It's just that there's so many moving parts that if you have enormous resources, you can game all of them to maximize your chances of getting free. Exactly. Okay. Hiring people is something that is fraught with peril as well as promise. It sure helps when you can narrow down the list to only really great choices first, so you're not choosing between good and bad, but good and great. That's what you get with Indeed. Indeed is the job site that makes hiring as easy as one, two, three. Post, screen, and interview all on Indeed. You can get a quality shortlist of candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your description faster. You only pay for the candidates that meet your must-have qualifications. And you can schedule and complete video interviews in your Indeed dashboard. With tools like Indeed Instant Match, which gives you quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your job description immediately, and Indeed skills tests that on average reduce hiring time by 27%. 
So get started right now with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash Mindscape. That's a $75 job credit on indeed.com slash Mindscape. Offer valid through June 30th. Terms and conditions apply. And on the other side of things, I mean, I can't let us go by without talking about uh, people who probably do not have a lot of high-powered law- lawyers, which are rappers. <laughs> you, you know, you got a lot of Aspire, Put the word in there, aspiring, aspiring rappers. rappers. That's, that's true. Yeah. The, the ones who've made it already, they can probably afford the Snoop best lawyers. and others might disagree with that. <laughs> right. Jay-Z can afford whatever lawyers he, he needs. But uh, yes. so you've done this fascinating work where um, prosecutors would, you know, for on whatever evidence they might have, bring up to trial a defendant uh, who they find has written their own rap lyrics. So we're not we're not talking about rap lyrics that are sort of in the air and on the radio, but these are lyrics written by the defendant. And well, you tell us what what happens here. Yeah, basically, rappers, aspiring rappers, are having their lyrics used against them in in criminal cases. And prosecutors are making the claim either that the lyrics are so threatening that the individual is communicating a terrorist threat, so the the lyrics themselves are the crime, or they're arguing that the lyrics represent sort of identity or motive with respect to some other alleged crime. Because the assumption is that that rap music is nothing more than autobiographical confessions. Mm. You know, it's not art. It's it's rappers confessing to crimes in their rhymes. Yeah, bragging exactly. And so they will. So what? What? How do they actually bring that into the court? So they basically, um, you know, along in their case, they will treat that as evidence. And often it's the only evidence they have about the individual that's being charged with X, Y, Z crime. And so the lyrics come in, the videos come in uh, as evidence. The judge allows that evidence in. And the next thing you know, this extremely stereotypical biased evidence for reasons I can get into is part of a trial where the jurors are told that these are confessions to crimes. Right. So why is it biased? Go into that. Well, so, you know, I just to back up and give some context to this, I, I, when I was a brand new assistant professor, I've always listened to hip hop. I had this idea of treating rap lyrics as data, sort Mm -hmm. of thinking about, um, different ways that we could, um, Well, yeah, basically thinking outside of the box in terms of data. And I thought, well, rappers have a lot to say. And they have a lot to say of interest around crime and violence and problematic policing and all sorts of things. And I did content analyses of rap music lyrics in very systematic ways, which I'm happy to talk about, analyzing over 400 songs in a 10-year period and published a series of papers where, where I used the rap lyrics as data, exploring a variety of themes around violence and crime and so on and so forth. Then in 2011, got contacted by an attorney who came across these content analysis papers of mine because he had a client, an aspiring rapper, whose lyrics were being used against him in you know, arguing that they were communicating a terrorist threat. And, they, and this attorney wanted me to do a content analysis of these lyrics to talk about whether these in fact were actual threats hmm. or just the stuff of rap. So I, did, I testified in that case, fast forward several years, I've testified in many cases, I've consulted on dozens of cases. A conclusion from those experiences was, wow, these lyrics, you know, 
are literally, I, I could see it on the faces of the jurors. Right. I liken it to if you've never seen a horror movie and then you get dragged to see Texas Chainsaw Massacre <laughs> and you, you know, you're just taken aback. So most of the jurors in these cases don't know anything about rap music. They certainly don't know much about gangster rap, which is the subgenre here. There's lots of violence. There's lots of threatening language. Now, as a listener of rap, this is pretty much par for the course. So I noticed immediately that the effect of these lyrics was, was sort of biasing. In other words, the jurors were unable to evaluate the content of the lyrics apart from stereotypes and assumptions that they had about not only the rap lyrics themselves, but rappers who make them. So I conducted a series, sorry, I know this is long, but um, I conducted a series of experiments to try and determine if this, my hunch was in fact uh, the case. And the experiments that I ran, and these were true experiments where we were able to randomly assign people um, to conditions of being exposed to rap lyrics versus violent lyrics that were other music genres, right? If that impacted people's evaluation and we found out that it did. Interesting. And and just yeah. to be super duper clear, what we're saying here is that someone can get arrested, a crime has been committed, right. more or less all we know about this person is, you know, maybe they owned a gun or maybe they had the opportunity and they wrote these lyrics and no other evidence and they get convicted on the basis of that. Right. And so my attitude is I don't know whether the person's guilty or not. I, I, I have no idea. But using rap lyrics as a shortcut to bypass a proper you know, trial, if you will, is problematic. If there is physical evidence, you know, the gun, you know, if there's eyewitness testimony, if there's other kinds of evidence, that should be the evidence that leads to the conviction, not someone's lyrics that they penned on a paper five years ago (laughs) that maybe talk about killings and shootings, but have nothing to do with the case at hand. So often what you get are the facts of a case and then the prosecutor trying to line up the lyrics with the facts of the case. Mm. The lyrics are quite generic. They're very common. You can find them in most rap songs. They have no bearing on the actual fact of the case. And if I recall from what the papers you've written, it is something special about the fact that these are hip hop lyrics rather than country music or heavy metal. That's exactly the point. So what we did in our experiment was we um, we found some violent lyrics. They're actually lyrics from a folk song, Fat Man's <laughs> Blunder by Kingston Trio. And just a couple of stanzas from them. And what we did was we randomly assigned people to be told that these were rap lyrics or country music lyrics or heavy metal lyrics in another set of experiments that we did. And then we asked people to read the lyrics and we asked them to evaluate the lyrics on a number of dimensions. How threatening are they? How dangerous are they? Should they be censored, not played on the radio? Do you think the the artist actually did what they're saying in the lyrics? And depending on which uh, set of lyrics you were assigned, the rap, heavy metal, right? Um, The evaluations change significantly. Right. So those that were told they were rap lyrics evaluated them much, much more negatively and most importantly, saw them as more literal and autobiographical compared to those respondents in our study who thought that they were heavy metal or country music lyrics. The Kingston Trio, those notorious gangster rappers. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. (laughs) And if I if I remember correctly, 
it was actually not correlated with what the uh, people being studied thought the race of the artist was. It was right. it was the the music genre was more important than race. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know. So the thing. So let me just back up and say. So when once we we did this study and we found that there was this impact. And by the way, we also found that it wasn't just the lyrics that were negatively evaluated. It was the artist himself. So when yeah. we we assigned artist status to each set of lyrics, this is a rapper, right? Then we asked people to evaluate the character of the artist. Mm -hmm. You think this artist is smart, intelligent, um, a nice person, engaged in criminal activity, a gang member, those who thought the lyrics were written by a rapper, right? Yeah. Much more negative character. Then we wanted to understand what's going on here. Is this rap? Is this race? Is it some combination of the two? And, you know, we tried to isolate out race by by having conditions where the rapper was white versus the rapper was non-white, right? This sort of thing, black. And it turned out that it was a very muddy kind of set of findings. We didn't find that you could isolate out race in a way that was significant per your comment. However, when we didn't this is very difficult to explain, but, but but let me just put it this way. When we didn't identify the race, but asked the individual in the rap condition to suggest the race, right? they most frequently suggested that this person was a person of color, African-American. So we think race is a, a definitely a part of this equation. It's mm -hmm. just very difficult to separate out all of these things. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that would be the lesson that I would draw. It's not that there's no racism there, racism doesn't matter, but that there's a whole bunch of factors that are in a stew that are mixed up. And uh, that's why your job is much harder than mine as a physicist. That's why I cannot imagine studying human beings. It, it's about... the perfect definition of intersectionality because exactly, it's not just, right. you know, that these folks are black. They are young men, mainly from inner city communities that are aspiring rappers. So right. it's all of it together. So they're practically guilty before <laughs> before they even step in. When you, yeah. Exactly. Tell us about the content analyses you mentioned. So um, I was, I when I was a graduate student, we were reading works by famous sociologists, William Julius Wilson and others on sort of the large scale macro changes happening in society and its impact on communities basically African-American communities in terms of crime and violence. And everything from deindustrialization to the war on crime, the war on all of it, war on drugs. And I, I was listening to hip hop at the time. This was in the 90s, the mid 90s. And I remember thinking, wow, these rappers are rapping about exactly what I'm reading mm. about in William <laughs> Julius Wilson's The Truly Disadvantaged. Of course, they're not calling it deindustrialization but they're describing these changes. And that's when I got this idea of, of, of using rappers' lyrics as data to kind of illuminate some of these theoretical concepts that I was seeing. My dissertation advisor told me, don't do that, you'll never get a job. <laughs> that cannot be your dissertation, it's too fringe, nobody yeah. knows about hip hop, this was the mid 90s. And uh, so I, I put it on the back burner. Well, when I got to be an assistant professor at George Washington University, I said, enough, I'm doing this. And so I decided to do a content analysis, identifying the various themes in these key sociological works, um, but doing it in a much more systematic way than, than I thought had been happening in the field. There was a lot of sort of ideological work around hip hop. Sure. So I basically got every single album, rap album, that went platinum over an eight year period 
all of the songs off of those albums. Okay. And then I got all of the lyrics from all of those songs, Mm -hmm. thousands of them. Then I randomly selected a third of them, which was about 600 songs. And then I started content analyzing them one by one because they were randomly selected. I felt that I had the universe there. Um, And after about song 430, (laughs) <laughs> I was, <laughs> I reached what is called saturation in right. terms of the themes, line by line by line, content analyzing. Then I had an independent coder, a graduate student, code a subset of those so we could check for intercoder reliability on all these different themes. And then I started writing papers. This was a like a five-year project it, uh, that produced many, many papers, but it was very, very long and arduous. What if, in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what's happening. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Babbel is the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. What I like about Babbel is its practicality. It's about talking to real people, ordering food, asking directions. You will put it to use. And here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash Mindscape. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash Mindscape. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Mindscape. Rules and restrictions may apply. And what are, you, what are you looking for in the lyrics? Is it a commentary on criminal justice or, or talking about doing crimes? Right. So I was looking at a variety of themes. I started, I had both a deductive and inductive approach. The deductive approach took a couple of theoretical frameworks, like I mentioned in William Julius Wilson's work, Elijah Anderson's Code of the Streets and others, looking for themes around violence, misogyny, problematic policing. But however, as I was content analyzing the lyrics, themes kind of bubbled up Hmm. that I hadn't anticipated using these theoretical frameworks. And so I also incorporated those in one, just to give you a concrete example, and I don't know how familiar you are, you are with hip hop of the nineties, rap music of the nineties, but a lot, a lot, I'm looking, I'm waiting a for a bit, reaction. A little bit, not, a little you know, bit. I'm not, okay. I'm not going to claim like I'm older than that. I, I'm more, you know, uh, um, Eric B. Rakim kind of era. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I, my Kev likes to think that he knows rap of the 90s, but, you know, I, I, it's quite limited. But so, I, you know, I, I'm listening to these songs in my sample. You know, I would, I would, a song would come up in my random selection. I'd listen to it a bunch of times, get a feel for it. Then I would listen to it with the lyrics on the screen, coding line by line, do that a couple of times to make sure. One thing I, I noticed was, wow, Rappers of the 90s obsessed about death and dying mm. and the afterlife. Interesting. And, you know, rappers like Snoop and DMX and, and um, you know, Dre and all, all others. They were Tupac, Biggie. They were all talking about I might die. Death is just around. I mean, 
one of the papers that I wrote on nihilism is called mm -hmm. um, I See Death Around the Corner, which is a Tupac title. They were just obsessed with death and dying. And I got interested in that. And that wasn't really a part of any of the paradigms that I, I, I the theoretical works I was dealing with. And so I kind of, that bubbled up from the data and I ended up coding around that and wrote an entire paper on a sort of nihilism in rap music. And it's the point that, you know, there was there was something that was being perceived by these artists that was not being perceived by the academics. Exactly. And one of it was, you know, a lot of people say, well, rappers and, and folks in these communities, they, they act irrationally. And, you know, what what how do we understand violence? Like, what is the purpose? Why are you carrying around guns? What what is why is there so much violence like? And a lot of what I was hearing um, from the rappers was this notion that like tomorrow is not promised yeah, and death could be right around the corner. And at any moment, um, your life can be taken away from you. And that was the case for Tupac yeah. and Biggie, two yeah. of the people that spoke about, right. They, they were right to have these fears. And, you know, the source of those fears goes from everything from their histories to the conditions in their neighborhood, to the role of guns in the community, to these macro structural changes, to problematic policing. And, you know, in that context, acting crazy and, and not caring about the future, not planning for the future, kind of whiling out made sense. Mm. And, and so I talk, you know, it's quite rational behavior. If tomorrow isn't promised, it doesn't make sense to buckle down and look to the future for, right. for, for your gratification. So it was like those kinds of themes that were fascinating to me. And it's also, um, this is just a, a complete cliche, but worth getting on the table that um, oh, hip hop has always been criticized by older school popular musicians by the fact that they're not playing their instruments. It's there's no melodies, things like that. But on the verbal side of things, it's just so extremely more sophisticated and accomplished than that any typical pop lyricism that we've had ever, right? And that is exactly why I loved hip hop and continue to love hip hop, and that's why it's flourished and has been as successful as it has been. Yeah. And this is my problem with what I call rap on trial, the what with a phenomenon we were talking about before, which is that rap is denied the status of art. It's denied the status of poetry. It's it's and it is relegated to um, basically autobiographical confessions, right. and that is extremely problematic to me. And it raises, and racist, quite frankly, <laughs> pretty darn racist. I, I want to talk. I think that there's very interesting things to be said about how art can be thought of as evidence in a criminal trial. So let me just ask the most. Uh, procedural question. What are the evidentiary rules for a judge to just let someone's high school poetry into a trial? Right. So obviously the evidence has to be proposed by the prosecutor. In these cases, defense attorneys are arguing vociferously to exclude it. Sure. Um, but they need help in terms of making that case. Now, in theory, you are not allowed to use what is called character evidence in these cases. Hmm. In other words, evidence that speaks to someone's character. And that's how prosecutors are attempting to use this. And so what happens is that, that, that prosecutors, what they want the jurors to hear is if someone could write these lyrics, they could do the crime. Right. 
That's what I think is they're hoping is happening. That's not allowed. So basically, but they're finding ways around that by arguing that the lyrics speak to the motive, identity, or intent of the individual with respect to the alleged crime. I see. So part of the maneuver is to deny that this could be art, right? To say that it must be a straightforward autobiographical confession, which if you sang it with country music behind it, it, you would not think. Well, and that's exactly the point. Name me one other form of artistic expression where this is happening in the courts. You can't. There is no other form of artistic expression. In other words, defendant authored lyrics that are being introduced into the court, except when it comes to rap music. Now, Heavy metal cases have been in the courts. That's for an, a separate issue, the issue of incitement. Mm. But when we're talking about defendant-authored lyrics making an appearance in court, that is only for rap music. And, and you've said, I think you've already said this, but I just want to hear it again. Uh, it works. This bringing in these violent lyrics uh, really does sway the juries. Absolutely. Convictions are happening. Now, some cases are getting overturned at the appellate level, but most are not. And I think, you know, The goal is to not get the lyrics in to begin with. And defense attorneys come to me all the time asking, you know, I'm filing a pretrial motion to exclude this evidence on these grounds. I know it's, I know it's biased and stereotypical. How do I show that? And I'm like, well, here's some experimental research I've done that actually documents that. And I'm currently working with a law professor at UC Irvine, um, Jack Lerner, and his students at a clinic that he runs. We are producing a manual for defense attorneys Hmm. that will help them navigate these cases because many of them don't know much about rap music to begin with. So they get the videos. They have, you know, some of the same stereotypes and assumptions, even as they want to help their client. And then, you know, given my experience testifying in these cases, you know, I'm able to provide some context and and useful information about how these cases basically go down, if you will. So what if we're I'm just trying my best here now to uh, to do the devil's advocate thing. So if I'm on the jury for one of these trials and, and maybe it's specifically about rap or whatever, but my big picture question is how much context should I let inform my priors about, you know, who this person is, who the defendant is, where they come from? I mean, there's, it, I, in an ideal world, you want to say, well, there's the evidence of this case. But right. as a good Bayesian, I want to take my, my prior and multiply it by the evidence, the likelihood of the evidence, right? So is there a theory of that? Or, or do the jurors get instructions about how to be good Bayesians? <laughs> Right. So this is a really important part of these cases. So if the lyrics do get allowed in, the pretrial motion fails, as it often does. Okay. What is absolutely essential, given my research, I think, is that the jurors be educated on the broader context of hip hop and rap. Hmm. These are the genre conventions, right? right? If you're an aspiring gangster rapper, these are the kinds of themes that are going to permeate your music. Why do these themes permeate the music? because that's what makes commercial success. That's what gives you respect as a rapper. So having that context, having that background and understanding allows jurors to properly evaluate the evidence in the context of the other evidence and the trial. Not having that background information is extremely problematic in my case. And that's where experts come in to provide that context. Right, that makes sense. Yeah, and, and to have an alternative explanation other than, this is simply confession. A violent person, you know, they're, they're right. going to do it. 
And uh, I mean, since I'm very much out of the uh, loop on these things, how prevalent is gangster rap as a subgenre of hip hop now as compared to what it used to be? Like, I had a feeling that in the yeah. early 90s or whatever, it was it was it was very high up there and maybe it's less prevalent now. Yeah. And I'm not even sure if you would even call it gangster rap. There's so many subgenres of rap music. Yeah. Right. And I guess what we could talk about is, you know, what percentage of aspiring rappers you know, have themes of violence and threat and misogyny in their lyrics. And I still think it's pretty high. Mm -hmm. Now, it may not be the stuff you hear on the radio or, you know, you're familiar with among common rappers, but it is definitely, definitely out there at the amateur level, at the aspiring level. Good. That makes, and, that makes I mean, sense. I just, it's, it's huge. And it's not just among blacks. It's among white rappers yeah. and Asian rappers and Latino rappers. It is, it is definitely still the currency by which you both make money as a rapper and gain respect as a rapper. So and, I think if you were, yeah, I mean, people are not rapping about the, the good, you know, the ha there, there's just not like a <laughs> lot of Will Smith kind of rappers out there. But also when you're aspiring anything, you're in your teenage angsty period, right? And exactly. you know, the world is terrible and you're going to explain it to people. <laughs> exactly. Or, or you're also going to report what's going on in your community. Right. I mean, a lot of cases involve rappers that are frustrated with the conditions in their communities, with the problematic police relations. And they're calling the police out in it in threatening ways. Yeah. Right. When does that become a problem? Well, what can <laughs> when we say is it an actual threat? Yeah. No, I mean, that's a, a legitimate question. I think it's, it's hard. Like, like we've been saying, your, your job is very hard. And let me make it even harder by extending from hip hop lyrics to just art more generally. Like, what is the general theory of if I have someone who has created something lyrics, poetry, novels, vid videos, right? Because everyone has an iPhone now and they can make their own videos. Right. Uh, how much should that inform a juror's deliberation about the likelihood that they could have committed the crime in front of them? Right. And this is the stuff that's decided in the courts in these appellate cases, right? Figuring out if something constitutes an actual threat or if it is just, I mean, you know, the, that there's that question. And then there's also, you know, why has Quentin Tarantino never been charged for the violence in his movies you know why did like the common example that we use all the time is uh johnny cash i shot a man in reno just to watch him die like nobody right. would or the the dixie chicks kill earl um that the former dixie chicks um you know nobody would assume that what's going on in that song they're actually doing and so what is it about rap um, now, there are some nuances there that should be addressed, like rap claims authenticity. Mm -hmm. So, you know, right, there's a component of rap that like, I'm not just rapping about it, I'm doing it. Yeah. And yeah, but and so that brings a wrinkle in. But the point is, is there's complexity there. It doesn't necessarily mean that the rappers are doing that, because if I, if every rapper did what they said they were doing in their raps, it'd be World War Three up in this country. <laughs> well, look, you know, every, I mean, that's sort of the point. Every politician claims that they were born in a blue collar family and, you know, drank beer yeah. and every everything like right. the fact that you think that authenticity is very important does not imply you're authentic. <laughs> exactly. And also there's a difference between, you know, who you are as a person and the character yeah. you play. I mean, this is why rappers have stage names. It's like That's, Hulk Hogan, right? Yeah. You know, there's Terry Bollea and then there's Hulk Hogan. And when he's in Hulk Hogan mode, he's going to say all kinds of crazy things. You know, and, I'm going to rip your head off and I'm going to do this, that and the other. And it's part of the character. 
Are there lessons here for things that are not quite art or even aspire to be, but nevertheless might be brought in as evidence of what this person is like, like, you know, personal diaries, social media posts, things like that? I mean, what, what are the rules as, as an outsider, once again, for bringing that stuff in to impugn the character of the defendant? Yeah, they're, they're, the rules are very difficult. And I mean, it's very I mean, as just a criminologist, I am not up on sort of the legal the legal doctrine around what is acceptable, what is a true threat, right? I know artistic expression has certain protections and for good reason, hmm. um, right? If I want to critique the police in a song, I, sh you know, because we, we worry about a chilling effect that that might have on speech, particularly artistic speech or artistic expression. Um, but, you know, what the, what all the intricacies of whether in a particular instance, um, lyrics from a song or just someone's thoughts represent a threat is like, uh, I mean, I'd have to go back to all those Supreme Court cases where yeah. they're ruling on this and and understand the complexities there. It's difficult. There's a lot, there's a lot going on. I mean, let's, let's start circling back a little bit. Um, despite all this, crime is going down, right? I mean, the, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about uh, incarceration, how high it is, the, some of the inequities in the system. Um, but yet crime, like maybe since 1990 or something like that, has been going down. What, are, what are, is our understanding of why that has been happening? Well, um, so first of all, there's, as a criminologist, we talk about crime trends kind of at different levels. There's the societal level, and we can look at the societal factors like economic conditions and that sort of thing. We can look more at variation across cities. So I would argue that crime is not going down in some cities, but it is in others. Sure. And then even within cities where crime is going down, you have sort of the unequal distribution of that benefit. Like in some neighborhoods, crime is going up. So it's a very complex question. Crime is going down. I, I'd say, I'd say on the on the broad scale, um, mainly because socioeconomic. Can, I mean, let, let's take the crime drop because mm -hmm. that's a very defined period. When, Criminologists. When was that period? So the crime drop. Ha so remember, I mentioned the crime drop early on in the interview, which is that crime rates went were sort of consistently going down, starting about the early nineties through the mid two thousands. Okay. Okay, because. You know, when you say crime's going down, I, I want to get like fixated. Well, what sure. years are you talking about? And yeah, because it's actually gone up. And yeah, so let's let's pick a defined period that everyone would agree that crime sort of went down universally, which is the crime drop. And we have looked at a number of factors responsible for the crime drop, including the sort of drying up of the crack cocaine markets of the 80s, the economic boom of the 90s. My own work has looked a lot at the role of demographic shifts in our society, including a rise in immigration to cities in the United States. So contrary to a lot of popular belief, immigration to an area causes crime to go down rather yeah. than up. Um, you wouldn't know that after our last administration, <laughs> but that's that's in fact the case. So these large scale macro forces are what we tend to look at to understand crime booms and busts. And there's now, the Freakonomics no. explanation of Roe versus Wade. No, no it no. doesn't work. Yeah, I, th I thought that was kind of discounted, but I wasn't Sorry. sure. Sorry. Yeah, no, that's, <laughs> that's, that is, uh, we've moved on from that. That's pretty much been debunked. So I, I certainly makes perfect sense to me that the economy doing better in the 90s uh, would, would help crime go down. And 
in some sense, it makes perfect sense to me that the dissolution of the crack cocaine epidemic would help. But is it is it mostly because people who were addicted to crack committed crimes or people got arrested because they were on crack? No. So basically, the, the recession of the crack markets involved people. Um, it, it really the role of firearms is central here. OK, so when crack was very popular in the 80s and out and about in and in, individuals were getting involved in selling crack. People were arming themselves with guns because you can't turn to the police when you have a prop, when you've gotten your right. drugs robbed off of you, right? <laughs> so um, basically, people started arming themselves. This also meant that folks in these communities who had nothing to do with the crack cocaine market, but who navigated in these communities also felt the need to arm themselves in protection. And we saw an upsurge in, in young people carrying firearms. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, Recall your statement earlier about yep. young people development <laughs> and, and firearms, right? And so we saw a surge in, in, in violence in the 80s due to, these, due, due to this, which when the, the markets closed up and dried up, a lot of that gun violence and, okay. uh, and ended up going down. So there's no rule that says that when an effect happens, there's only one cause of it. There can be multiple exactly. causes. That a hundred percent. That is exactly why it is so difficult to. I mean, with looking at something like controlling crime or predicting crime, it's very challenging, and that's why statistics are our friend because we can talk about probabilities um, without being, you know, needing to be like certain, right? We we can say with with within a certain range of probability, right? It, more of this equals less of that. But um, right. this is my students will go, well, what about? And I go, well, that, that still fits with statistics. <laughs> yeah, that's part but of it. And of one case does is is still works within our statistical framework. Well, and you did mention immigration as something in particular. I think that's worth uh, being clear about because it is a messy situation and politically highly charged. But there is data out there. And the, the short version is that I think it's true to say that immigration does not increase crime. Uh, but what's the longer version? So there is, if there is one area that I have done research in where the findings are consistent and clear, it is this area. And that is both that immigrants have lower offending rates uh, than their native born peers and that crime, immigration to an area causes, it either has no impact on crime or causes it to go down. That's it. And this has been reported in studies from the early 1900s through my meta-analysis and beyond. I did a meta-analysis with Graham Ousey at William & Mary. We basically got every single study published between 1994 and 2014, of which there were over 50 studies. And we, we did a meta-analysis, sort of a formal evaluation of that literature, looking at sort of what the average effect of, uh, uh, you know, of, of, of the immigration on crime um, sort of the average effect of immigration on crime across this body of research was, and it was null. It was basically a null relationship. Yeah. Um, when there was um, a significant relationship, it was more likely to be negative than positive, meaning immigration going up, crime going down. And what we also found was predicting the variability in, 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 in the, the coefficients, if you will, we found that studies that were more robust, that had more control variables, that had longitudinal designs, that means dealt with causality better, showed a more, a, a stronger negative effect than positive effect. So, I mean, every, the needle points in the direction every single time. 
Of course, both immigrants and uh, people who are already here are heterogeneous groups, right? There's all sorts of different people coming in there. But is it nevertheless uh, possible to go one step beyond what you just said and explain why? I mean, if there's a slight decrease in crime, is it because uh, immigrants are just a little bit more um, careful about not offending the powers that be because they don't want to be kicked out? Or is it just because they're selected to be hardworking and trying to form a better life? Or what can we say? You hit two of the big ones. So the first is the selection, (laughs) the selection issue, right? Obviously, folks coming over to the United States, not a random cross section of the population, highly selected, hardworking, willing to delay gratification, right? None of the characteristics associated with criminality. There's also the sort of the fear of maybe deportation or um, coming into contact with authorities. So a deterrence perspective there. There's other factors, though, that I think are interesting. We found in some research that immigrants on average tend to have lower rates of single parent households, divorce and other kinds of family disruption. And family disruption is a at the macro level is correlated with crime. Um, So, you know, again, that's not to say that that immigrants aren't, you know, there there aren't households where divorce is happening and that sort of thing. But on average, they have lower rates. Statistics. They're also they also have lower rates of unemployment um, uh, compared to native born blacks and whites, particularly. I mean, even if that's low wage uh, employment, it still helps offset poverty and poverty being a correlate of some crimes. So. You know, there's a number of competing explanations, some at the individual level, some at the more macro level. Um, And right now I've got a grant from the National Institute of Justice that's beginning to try to parse out why, you know, which mechanisms may be responsible for this. I guess maybe one thing worth saying, although correct me if, if it's emphasizing the wrong thing, but a lot of the crimes we've been talking about, these violent crimes or drug crimes, uh, we're excluding or not paying attention to white collar crimes very exactly. much, right? And that would be a very different discourse. It's not the it's not what we think of when we think of these kinds of crimes. One hundred percent. The whole field, I, unfortunately, criminology is obsessed with what we call street crimes rather than sweet crimes, S U I T E, and that's hugely, <laughs> hugely problematic. Yeah, that would be a whole other podcast, maybe. But, uh, but okay, yes. yeah, a, people who are in the in the suites are still committing some crimes. That's that's. Probably true. In fact, I don't know. Is it more likely if you have an income of over $300,000 a year that you're committing a crime every year than if you have one of under $50,000 a year? Let's put it this way, that the damage done is much greater. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I bet the probability is higher because you're at least, you know, like not paying all your taxes or something like that, right? The exactly, right. Who- so, I mean, yeah, the question is, I mean, for a long time, that was, many of these behaviors weren't even considered criminal. They're yeah. considered like creative accounting or something like that. But 100%. <laughs> Yes, there is plenty of white collar crime going around. All right. So uh, I'd like to end the podcast on an optimistic note, if possible. But I will let you decide whether we we should be optimistic or not. Crime did go down a little bit during the crime drop. I mean, are you optimistic about how we're doing? Do you think the criminal justice system is becoming a little bit more good or efficient or sensible or just in dealing with these? And if not, what's the one thing we can do to make things better? Ooh, that's a good question. So, you know, what's interesting is COVID, mm. um, you know, di- th- we didn't talk at all about sort of COVID and crime, um, the pandemic, I should say, and crime, because one of the really interesting silver linings, if you can say something like that, to the pandemic was when everything shut down, crime plummeted. 
Um, I really, it was unbelievable to see the drops in crime. I mean, part of that is nobody's going anywhere, <laughs> right? So, yeah. you know, stores are shut down. I mean, so crime absolutely plummeted. The scary thing about that, though, was that we saw it move online ah. and shift online in a way that get, is like a harbinger of the future for me, which is sort of how are we going to deal with the complexities of combating crime in the virtual space, which has really, really taken off. Yeah. And I, so I think as, you know, we move forward and think about, you know, crime going down, is it really going down? Is it being displaced elsewhere? Right. And, and now, by the way, it's in some places it's back up. Violent crime in some cities is quite problematic. Obviously, mass shootings are a huge, huge problem. So I think when we talk about kind of run of the mill crime, things seem good. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of things. So it's that's optimistic. It but is, I am going to end pes <laughs> pessimistically because I worry about the mass mass shootings that are just every day. Police violence, a lot of the, you know, what's happening in, uh, you know, to young men of color and young women of color whose lives are being taken by misconduct by the police and other um, police use of force. There's the online crime that has shifted as we get more advanced and, and people are using technology more in their daily lives. So those are my, and then the privatization thing to circle back to right. that. Those are like four areas that I, I think we need to be keeping our eye out on. When you mention online crime, you know, what should we have in mind as the kind of crime that is, that is prevalent online that you're worried about? Oh, everything from, I mean, you know, recall when, when people were scurrying around to find masks, right? The sort of the, all of that where they have these fake products, these problematic products, or people were getting their checks and then they were getting false emails to log in to get your, your check okay. from the yeah. government to, uh, you know, um, bigger picture kinds of um, tax evasion stuff. Um, well, yeah, so I'm, 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 I'm blanking on who it was that was, remember they sold the stocks at the last minute Oh, which one? The the senators? Yeah. I mean, Kelly Loeffler was, was one that? of them, right? Yeah, I forget. But remember, they unloaded all of that. Yeah. I mean, that just that kind of yeah. it, it's it's it ranges from like the individual who's selling illegal goods online or who's stealing people's checks or are, you know, doing hate crime online. All of that from the individual to these bigger kinds of fraud. If yeah, fraud. So th this is your optimistic message that we're entering an era <laughs> of widespread fraud on the internet. That's on the horizon, <laughs> and we need to figure out. I mean, us criminologists, we're so busy with our street crime. Well, maybe we the optimistic to... message is that when you you, know, you mentioned the mass shootings and uh, police brutality and things like that, maybe we're more cognizant of that now. Maybe w there will be a momentum to try to clean that up a little bit. I don't know. Oh, one, yes, I, I agree. I think that's there's recognition of these th issues as problems and there's an awareness. Um, and so we just need to figure out how we're going to stay one step ahead on all of this and and, and reform where reform needs to happen. Those are all very wise words. I think that's a very good ending place. Sharis Kubrin, thanks so much for being on the Mindscape podcast. Thank you. I enjoyed it.
If you travel for work, you know to pack two suits, business and swim. You know with your Delta SkyMiles business Amex card, buying that plane ticket for a business trip can get you closer to medallion status. You know that a meeting in Montana means visiting almost every national park. Yellowstone? Check. Because you're the chief excursion officer. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum Business American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know business.